0: In this episode, Jahan and I spoke with Dr. Jaya Clara Brekke, a researcher on the political economy of blockchains at Durham University and Chief Strategy Officer at NimTech. NimTech is reimagining a world where resilient digital platforms and ecosystems and individual privacy are not mutually exclusive. We connected with Dr. Brekke on a variety of topics including identity, security, control, and power. Dr. Brekke's work is guided by both political economy and anthropology, and she brings a discerning eye to both the potential and limits of blockchain applications. We hope you enjoy the episode. Well, Jaya, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you. It's very good to finally be here.
0: Cool. So we're very excited to have you on here because we've had a lot of kind of crypto maximalists on the pod. And so your writing suggests that you have a bit more nuanced approach to these technologies and their implications. But first, it'd be great to get into your background. You have a PhD in or doctorate in human geography and have been studying the political economies of blockchain technologies. Can you tell us a little bit about your origin story and just how you got to where you are today?
1: Sure, it's a little bit of a kind of long winded story, but to start with the political economy side of things, I guess that stems way back from when I was a teenager getting involved in the anti-globalization movement at the time. This was the early 2000s, late 1990s. And it was a global movement that was uh, fundamentally against capitalism. I mean, it was very much led by indigenous people, including the Zabatistas in Mexico. And I was kind of part of the movement, very much in touch with the Italian autonomist movement. And that was when I got an interest in political economy because i was interested in the kind of injustices perpetrated by global capitalist economic system and so i went to study political economy in fact under a person called massimo de angelis who was one of the theorists that was very much writing at the time around the commons and i guess the kind of the, the economic theories around the commons um, at that time was a kind of effort to push left political economic discourse a little bit away from purely being based in labor economies and kind of labor identity, and to look a little bit kind of beyond that um, towards trying to establish a kind of leftist economics independently of capital, I guess is one way to put it. So that's the political economy background. And then that intersected a lot with technology because, you know, a big part of the anti-globalization movement was also the kind of rise of what was called media, which was a global network of media organizations, independent media organizations, a decentralized network of independent media organizations producing and reporting from what was going on in the anti-globalization movement at the time. With the kind of idea of creating, you know, some independent news that would, let's say, allow the movements to express, uh, you know, what was going on for them on their own terms, rather than being reliant on centralized owned large kind of media conglomerates. And so, you know, which, you know, in turn also spurred my interest in decentralization and the power of decentralization as it kind of intersects both with technology and with politics decentralization was a big theme in those movements at that time, both through kind of the organization of things like indie media, but also through, you know, other peer-to-peer technologies that were coming about. And also importantly, in terms of the way that decision-making was taking place, which was often... Through assembly based decision making. So, by, you know, let's call them nodes, you know, groups of people, collectives, action groups, and so on that would make um, horizontal, that would operate through horizontal decision making processes. So, I guess, like, you know, those are all themes and threads that have been hugely formative for me, which then, you know, when blockchain came about or Bitcoin came about, took on this kind of like whole new slant and it was a curious kind of twist to to what was going on and i think like the confusion that i think still exists for the left around these technologies is similar to the kind of confusion that came about for you know like when you look at like the yellow vest movements in france or or this kind of thing like there were these like decentralized kind of popular movements coming up that did not really fit or does not really fit neatly within kind of typical left politics. And in in fact, sometimes, you know, very much uh, draws from the right. And in the case of of, uh, Bitcoin and blockchain technologies, very much draws from the arsenal of capitalism and, and financialization as we know it, but doesn't look, you know, exactly like the right or exactly like capitalism as usual either. And in fact, tries to kind of draw on those tools, to produce or at least claim to produce some sort of social reality and, and social future that you know in fact very much aligns with some of the ideas that were about in the anti-globalization movement. So, I mean, here I am today, <laughs> still trying to make sense of all this mess and trying to kind of really stay with the trouble of of making sense of of all that mess.
0: Amazing. And so you write about this in a bit of detail where. You're talking a bit about just how these technologies in many ways have brought speculation and securitization to all aspects of our lives that really were outside of the market purview. And and I'll kind of quote directly from a piece of your recent writing where you write, the explosive arrival of blockchain technology has splintered neoliberalism into tiny shards that instead of being destroyed, have rained down and pierced into all of us and our stuff turning all of our things into capital assets and all of our endeavors into financial speculation. So it seems like you're kind of a, not a black sheep, but almost a unicorn in this space where you've got this basis and a very kind of coming from the political left in terms of ideology, and then trying to make sense of this technology as a tool for liberation when in many ways, it may be just bringing the market to a bunch of places that we didn't want to have the market in the past.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. And I think it's one of those curious things around, you know, seeing decentralization in action, or also trying to kind of understand what are the different ways that we might understand and enact what we mean by decentralization. You know, is decentralization an actual kind of transformation of relationships of power? or is decentralization literally just like, okay, we want to decentralize the financial system, which means that we all become little bits of the financial system. Do we want to decentralize the state, which means we all become like mini states. And I think this, you know, you see this kind of like echoing through a lot of what's happening also in the, in the you know, ideas around digital sovereignty and online sovereignty. It's just like, you know, this kind of idea that we as you know individuals should contain all these different strange pieces of society which and that somehow that's going to make things better you know somehow if we each operate as our own bank and issue our own coins if we each operate as our own kind of you know financial institution or as a speculator or as you know a head of state somehow that's going to make things better and I think there's that is really a kind of there's something like deeply philosophical there that i need, that i think needs to be interrogated around what we mean by decentralization and what we mean by you know also something like democracy for example where you know are we do we see everyone as all the same or that we should all be the same i.e. all contain have you know all these elements and decision making in all these realms or do we see each other as, you know, fundamentally different and therefore, you know, equal within a certain kind of systemic context. So it's like there's there's a lot of like philosophical stuff that needs to be worked out around how we actually implement this idea of decentralization and for what purposes exactly. Because, you know, I think one of the other taglines that I keep saying is like, you know, decentralizing, you know, computation, decentralizing technology does not necessarily decentralize power. So. To make that a little bit more concrete, you know, if we decentralize, you know, say we we each become our own, you know, our own central bank and we each start issuing our own coins, some people will be more versed at doing that than others. And so the actual outcome of that form of decentralization will not be, you know, a more decentralized power. It will be, in fact, a much more unequal power. And so I think like we need to look at decentralization, you know, in terms of what are we actually trying to achieve? And then work out, you know, what are the systems that that best achieve that rather than the other way around. If that makes sense.
0: It makes total sense. And I think you see that with a lot. I mean, this is a, a topic that comes up consistently when we look at the health of any particular blockchain, right? Where you've got, you know, the centralization of power, the centralization of wealth within a particular number of, of accounts, which is often denominated by different different metrics, whether it's kind of the Nakamoto coefficient or other similar metrics that essentially state. Here is the wealth that's controlled by x number of accounts or X y number of people. or here is the amount of power that can take over this network by x number of accounts or y number of, of people. And so in a lot of these conversations, we just got off a, a conversation last week about kind of the development impact space and these areas of where tokenization could support social outcomes, where be it education or health or other, social goods that we traditionally have thought of outside of the market system and now are very much being kind of securitized. And and we're being forced to think in this, both in terms of the landscape in which we're in, literally the geography of the world in which we're in, in terms of thinking of everything as an asset that can be securitized, but also in terms of our motivation in the day-to-day of kind of just be being in, extrinsically motivated by these tokens and coins which has come up in previous conversations as well with folks like Nathan Schneider.
1: I think there's something a little bit more that I'd like to unpack there and it has to do with, you know, decentralization spurring on, you know, these processes of economization and these processes of financialization, right? And for me, I you know, a piece that I can't wait to just carve out some time to actually really work on is to actually go back and look at feminist political economy to try and tackle some of these questions. Because feminist political economy is actually one of the few disciplines that looks critically at that process of, you know, this idea of economic inclusion being a means to for justice or a means for social emancipation, right? Where there was a movement, in again, in Italy, you know, called Wages for Housework that argued for, you know, women being paid for work done in the house, And, you know, the interesting thing about that movement is that I can, you know, we can see there, you know, there was a kind of like a knee jerk reaction to that back in the day, which was like, you know, there was this kind of idea of the household being this kind of like sacred space where like, no, the kind of like the the dirtiness of economics should not, you know, be part of that. And also a lot of like worry of like, you know, this being a kind of expansion of, of capitalist logic and capitalist dynamics and the kind of wage relation into spheres that were otherwise kept pure and clean from that, right? And so I think, and there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to like the moment we d- demand a wage for something or the moment that we met, ma- we put a kind of economic value on something, or the moment that we include something into a financial system, we get both the bad and the good from that, right? Like on the one hand, it's like that inclusion does enable some certain type of empowerment on a kind of immediate individual basis, but then at a more aggregate level, it reproduces and expands that logic into continuously, into new realms. And so I think like going back and looking at some of that history, both in terms of wages for housework, but I'm also thinking about, you know, debates around, you know, sex work that have been taking place over the past few years. Like there's some economic ideas that have been kind of like thoroughly worked through there that I think might actually be very useful for, the kinds of debates that, you know, and the kinds of skepticism that we see on the left in terms of the economization and the financialization that's coming about as a result of blockchain technologies and decentralized finance, uh, you know? Yeah. I just wanted to make that point.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's, it's fascinating. And I think like, again, going back to a podcast that we just kind of finished and will be actually launched this week. And so it'll be in a week in the past. The, the, One of the aspects of this that I've been thinking a lot about is the entire kind of the entire framework that we're working in in the West here around decentralization assumes a a liberating effect to these technologies in the sense that if you have a state machine that essentially is able to show what events happened in the past and who kind of performed those events. You can build on top of those to, to create all these new Lego blocks that empower people to come together and achieve things in different ways that they haven't been able to achieve in the past. And when you talk about kind of the, the role of women in non-traditional work in the household and being able to bring kind of an economic lens to that, or the role of sex workers and kind of these gray markets that exist within the West. What it reminds me of, and it's a little bit off topic, but it's something we'll get into later in the pod, is just how much we take for granted that these, te- these deterministic technologies that we're building are very much empowering to the extent that we live in a, a, gov- a macro governance framework or within nation states that respect liberty. And so the good and the evil of what we're building within kind of a, a framework like China, where you might have kind of fewer rights You can really start to see kind of the securitization of different aspects of people's lives and the ability to predict behavior based on past behavior as something that's really concerning. So a little bit off topic, but I think like the that work that you are interested in doing would be fascinating for trying to explore. How do we do this in a way that is empowering, but is not kind of confining to the individual as we try to create more economic inclusion and liberty without essentially encapsulating everything we do and everything that defines us in how much kind of economic value that we create.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I guess what I really want to do by doing that piece of work is to try and work out that question of, you know, is whether inclusion is the aim here or transformation or, you know, how can we do a little bit of both, right? Because inclusion in a system that's fundamentally fucked up is not not necessarily always that helpful. And decentralization of a system that's fundamentally fucked up is not necessarily either that helpful. And I think that's what we need to start looking at is like, to what extent is decentralization actual transformation? Or to what extent is it just reproduction on a more granular level?
0: Yeah, and you even, you know, we're going so far off topic from what we were originally Going to talk about, but this is kind of a fascinating line of, of approach. Like you've even done work for the EU, right? Where you essentially say in some of your writing for the EU, you talk about kind of institutions that are working. Maybe you don't want to decentralize them because effectively they're working and they're they're a good kind of framework in the sense that decentralizing them could actually undermine a lot of the accountability and trust that's been built within an institution. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that before we go into some of the micro stuff around design.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like, the, you know, the kind of anti-institutionalism that exists in the blockchain space is sometimes a little bit like overly naive. Well, not just sometimes, it's like oftentimes extremely naive. And many times we need to understand the the institutions, you know, for better or for worse, that we have today as also a form of collective memory of, you know, conflicts, struggles, rights, things that have been won in the past and that have been enshrined in these institutions And so kind of, you know, destroying them without, you know, in senseless ways is really also to destroy, uh, you know, hard fought (laughs) rights and hard fought kind of conflicts that have that, you know, we actually need to pay a little bit more attention to. And so, yeah, for me, I'm kind of generally just, you know, I think it's super important to kind of keep an eye on what we're actually trying to achieve rather than being so fixated and so dogmatic around certain kinds of forms or means, right? And that's where I think it's like important to understand the value of, of certain types of institutions um, at the same time as we're advocating for you know their further development and further iterations.
2: Yeah, I think there's a friend of mine, um, Pat Rawson, who's at the Collectiva project, which is basically building on-chain localized exchange trading systems coupled with a currency, geospatial, data oracle, stuff like that, basically to ostensibly create new institutions on the island of Curacao that are owned by the community that make them a little bit more resilient to the petrodollar, right? Because if you're familiar with island economies that operate under that, inflation, America, that was a lagging indicator, <laughs> like inflation in America being really felt now within the last six months. Curacao and other islands that depend on dollars for services from far off places felt that way sooner. Right. And so like when you talk about, I really like what you said about institutions as collective memory, because, you know, that reminds me of things like labor rights and maybe the NLRB right in the U S and stuff like that. Right. Where I see a lot of this on Twitter where people are just like full decentralization for everything is the way to go. And it's like uh, you know, decentralization of what for who for to what end, right? And so, exactly. like when I think about one of the things that Pat talks about a lot coming back to him is um he's got a super simple tagline in his Twitter and that really kicked off when we first met and became friends, is is just create institutions, right? And so there's actually quite a bit. I didn't read this work. <laughs> I didn't have time to, but he hit me with like three or four publications that we'll put in the show notes as well. For anyone who wants to read them and send me a, a synopsis, that'd be great. But basically they're around stuff like blockchains as institution as institutional primitives and stuff like that. And I, honestly, I think like with a person to a person like you, who's thought about this a lot, what do you think of that sort of nascent idea of people... You know maybe coming maybe maybe use Collectivo an example right folks who come together who are coming together around a you know new set of tokenized infrastructure maybe to build finance and co-own urban food forests this all sounds really nice right i would love to hear the other side of this right like are there and not just the other side there maybe there are orthogonal sides to it that I'm not seeing right like what's your sort of like reaction to that maybe not just Collectivo, but just in general right to this idea of like creating institutions not necessarily dissolving them. Because I feel like this stuff is on a spectrum, right? When you look at the, the, the Bitcoiners, I feel like are the ones who are like, raise it all to the ground, <laughs> right? Decentralize yeah. a lot of things in the crypto libertarian sense. And then there are there are flavors of that all across the landscape. So what mm. do you think about that?
1: Well, I think the another kind of curious tendency in the blockchain space is this idea of, and I guess it's captured a little bit in this idea of institutional primitives, I'm all for institutional primitives if it actually is real tooling that allows for institutions to function better. You know, clunky bureaucracies is something that nobody enjoys, including institutions that reproduce clunky bureaucracies. I mean, generally speaking, if you produce kind of um, useful uh, technical tooling for institutions, I think a lot will be quite happy to kind of adopt these if they make their lives um, easier. But this idea of kind of building institutions Sure. But again, it's this question of for what? So, you know, in the blockchain space, there is this kind of tendency to want to do, to want to solve a lot of problems in the abstract. And I'm still trying to kind of like nail down where exactly that tendency comes from. But you see it happening over and over and over again, where it's like, it's this idea of like, let's try and kind of like, and maybe it's because of kind of game theory, maybe it's because of like, yeah, like this or the, the kind of excitement of being able to redesign the world with a bit of code. But anyway, it's like, you know, people build these building blocks in the abstract and very rarely in close connection with people that are actually kind of trying to use this stuff. And so that's why you see, I mean, speaking of the recent publication that I wrote for the European Commission, which was a, a, a kind of um, policy recommendation, what, you know, what I wrote there was like, and what I've kind of like found is that a lot of the kind of most developed bits of, you know, most usable bits that are being created in the blockchain space is this stuff that allows, you know, it's a kind of like, how to put it, self, uh, oh, there's what is the word I'm looking for? Self-referencing? Self-referential, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this kind of like self referential thing where it's like the the easiest kind of like interfaces the most user friendly interfaces are the ones that al- that allow for the kind of perpetuation of yet another blockchain layer yet another blockchain project you know, yet another kind of like staking mechanism, you know, and very rarely is there a project that manages to step outside that and actually deliver value to people that are kind of beyond the token economics, right? That are like, you know, actually trying to kind of like go about living their lives, trying to like do other stuff. And so, yeah, there's this kind of these two tendencies very much in in the blockchain space, this idea of trying to rearrange the world in the abstract and solve problems in the abstract. So it's like, let's break institutions down to, you know, some very specific constituent parts and then build those out where actually when I'm, when I'm thinking about institutional memory, it's the kind of like ways of doing things that usually are far more kind of like messy and granular and come about through actual human um, and collective kind of renegotiation of actual events that, that happen over time. Right. And so I'm curious to see what kind of institutional memory gets built into code as, you know, DAOs um, evolve and develop and as these new forms take on more life, you know, and have longer histories. I think it's going to be interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, you just so much of what you've brought up touched on what we talked about with Richard Bartlett from Lumio, where in his work, he really looks at kind of the ability to be in dissent with others as a muscle that you build, the ability to... Kind of the messy gray area that you're talking about that's kind of the fascia of great institutions is something that takes time right it's something that you can't do overnight it's something that is you know our greatest institutions have been around for decades or hundreds of years and now we're trying to kind of recreate those in months or years with these blockchain technologies and the question is is that really capable or are we really capable of doing that but there are some kind of frameworks that have been developed and some primitives that have been developed that are more successful and in, in, in kind of a creating the right kind of behaviors between individuals that are coming together. And, and you've written a lot on this, right? And so you've written a lot on, you talked about game theory a little bit, you've written a lot on repeatable games and how to design for repeatable interaction. And you've also written on some of the limitations of the predominant tooling that's out there for a number of the tokens or or coins that have been created today, specifically staking systems and reputation systems. So can you walk us through kind of an example of those two primitives, kind of staking systems and reputation systems, and some of your concerns around the the limitations of each when you're trying to embed these into an institution?
1: Staking and reputation. I mean, I guess one way that i could walk through those two primitives is to talk a little bit about staking and reputation in nim which is the project that i'm currently working on it's a decentralized global privacy project it's an incentivized mixnet that provides uh, privacy by mixing people's traffic and it has a you know a, a kind of native token that is used for staking and reputation should I do that?
0: Yeah, I think that's, I think if you want to use NIM as a case study, I think that's a great example because it seems that a lot of your most recent thinking has gone into kind of the, the tokenomics of Nim and figuring this out. And what I, it might have been in that EU paper where you talk about kind of the limitations of staking. Um, one of them being that it can lead to kind of a plutocracy um, where those that actually are embedded in the system earlier on have the ability to control. Governance, and then with reputation, often you know similar effects can happen where you've got kind of reputation that's been established can lead to lead to outcomes where those that are, were early in the system are are able to control events throughout the design of an institution, and new players can't get into the can't get into a particular community or company or institution or blockchain or whatever specific entity that we're talking about. So maybe using those frameworks within Nim, would be helpful to see how that thinking has evolved and how you're putting kind of this pretty nuanced approach to how do we use blockchain to actually, in in these technologies and these primitives, actually achieve specific outcomes as opposed to just being kind of interesting technologies in and of themselves.
1: Yeah. So that's where it's, I think it's almost important to, to think a little bit about staking and reputation. Exactly in context of in the design of very specific systems, because in the abstract, you know, in the abstract, there's plenty of to critique about both, you know, staking systems and, you know, algorithmic reputation systems. I think like a lot of people that would hear what these are, you know, would kind of like freak out unless and until they're explained in the context of a very specific way of using these tools. And then they start to make a little bit more sense or they can actually become a little bit more kind of interesting to look at how those dynamics play out. So, in the nim system, so the nim system does, you know, try and kind of account for or ameliorate the kind of issue with staking that results in, you know, kind of increasing centralization or like let's say the early, you know, early adopters kind of dominate the system. And also when it comes to reputation, the NIM system, you know, has, you know, uses reputation as a way to ensure the kind of security of the infrastructure itself. So it shouldn't be confused with like reputation of users or anything like that, because fundamentally it's a privacy system. So in fact, it uses reputation to ensure that there is a kind of security of and, and good quality of nodes actually operating the network. But to take a step back and try and kind of like walk through staking and reputation as it works in the token economics of Nim basically you know anyone who holds Nim tokens can stake those tokens and what does staking mean in this scheme it means you either kind of stake a bond to actually run a node and this means you're kind of like placing a stake on yourself you're, you're putting a bet on yourself you're you're showing you know through a kind of like economic bond how much you believe in your own operations as a node runner in the network. If you hold NIM tokens, you can also delegate stake, which means instead of putting up a bond to run a node yourself, you put that stake on one of the nodes that you believe in. And, you know, as a result, you know, you can earn a share of rewards that those nodes actually receive. And so these two types of staking together make out what is the reputation of that node in, in the network and the reputation of the node you know is the kind of like how much do you know the general community of token holders believe in this node actually operating decently providing a good service and providing the kind of you know quality kind of privacy services to people that are using the network so it's a form of kind of like decentralized quality control if you like now nodes then get rewarded partially on the basis of that reputation And on the basis of their actual performance. And so the kind of economic game, let's say, is that if the node doesn't perform well and starts, you know, it will then start receiving less rewards, which then means that people who have delegated stake to that node start to receive less rewards. And so, you know, they then are unhappy with the quality of service that this node is providing and they'll withdraw their stake meaning the node would then be, you know, deselected from being part of the network. And so it's kind of using, let's say, this form of economic, this economic scheme, this token economic setup to ensure a form of decentralized quality control and by kind of assigning reputation to the nodes that that operate the network and that that is kind of like gamified, let's say, through the way that rewards are distributed.
0: Just to kind of follow up on that, for people who, I mean, because when you look at Nim, Nim's doing some fascinating stuff, but it's it's super complex, right? For the average the average person, right? So, like, what does a node do in Nim? Like, what is it actually doing? Why is the system so interesting from the perspective of the 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 challenge around privacy that Nim is trying to
1: to solve? Well, okay, so there's two things there. So, what a node does you know the main node that i've just been talking about is is a mixed node and what that node does is it performs work so just like you know people might you know vaguely or abstractly think about the work that you know a miner or a bitcoin node performs by you know mining bitcoin here instead it's something a, a little bit more concrete is providing the service of privacy So what the node does is it mixes internet traffic. So people send, you know, rather than communicating over the regular internet, your traffic will be routed via the mixnet, which then encrypts your traffic into multiple layers of encryption, passes it through multiple hops, meaning multiple nodes in the network, where it gets mixed with other traffic before it gets sent on the other end to the receiver. and What that mixing does is two very important things. It, first of all, obscures the patterns of communication. So that means that anyone who's observing the entire network will not be able to de-anonymize people by looking at their traffic patterns, their communication patterns. And secondly, it also protects communication, the metadata of communications. And uh, metadata is, you know, the kind of, you know, rather than, you know, let's say, okay, a lot of kind of like, Uh, communication platforms today from WhatsApp to whatever else claim that they're end-to-end encrypted, which, you know, that protects the content of the, of the communications, but it doesn't protect the metadata. The metadata is like how often you're talking to someone from what kind of device, where you're located, what size of message you're sending. And all of those things all of that information usually tells a lot more about you and about your habits and your relationships than even the content of the messages do And what's more that metadata is machine readable so you know it makes it a lot easier for machine you know types of surveillance that's based on machine learning to to analyze your communications and, and uh, your relationships. So what NIM does is it protects that and it does it at a kind of aggregate level. Yeah, so what the nodes, so that's the that's the work that the nodes do essentially. And that's the work that they're remunerated for in the network.
0: Cool. So essentially if I break it down, when we interact with, you know, whatever device we're interacting with, or just in our day-to-day lives, right? Because it doesn't mm-hmm. even need to be through a device ourselves. It could be us kind of getting picked up on a CCTV camera, it could be it could be just kind of when we you know go on the subway. Every single time we're dripping data our behavior is creating a fingerprint of who we are, right? And yeah. that, that fingerprint, we actually, most, the, the way that our own fingerprint of data interacts with, when you kind of map it against correlations with, when you get into data sets of millions or hundreds of millions or billions of individuals, it's actually very easy to figure out not only who we are from the metadata, but also patterns of behavior about us based on these correlations, based on kind of our interaction with larger data sets. And so, you know, when people say, oh, I clear my cookies, you know, I don't have to worry about Facebook or I don't care that Mark Zuckerberg has so much power. It's not really getting at the issue, right? It's that, it's it's not just your interaction on a platform like Facebook or WhatsApp, it's your interaction on every single other platform where Facebook might have a cookie or might have kind of, and that's just the beginning of this, right? And this is what was detailed in, Dr. Shoshana Zuboff's book, kind of Surveillance Capitalism, right, or The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And so effectively, what NIM is doing is it is anonymizing credentials through these nodes, right, and essentially enabling- One correction uh, there.
1: Okay, okay.
0: Okay, great. Uh,
1: so, and thank you for bringing up anonymous credentials because that is the second aspect to the NIM system. Cool. The mixnet—I mean, the, the best way to kind of explain it is that the mixnet secures privacy at the network layer, and that's what I've just explained. The anonymous credentials is—you know—it's a slightly—it's a separate piece to the puzzle. It's a separate piece to the the NIM privacy system overall. And that's something that protects privacy at the application level, meaning the, you know, when you log into a service, when you kind of like, you know, when you need to kind of input your credentials, so to speak, to access something. And that's, uh, it's a kind of, it's another piece to the kind of like full stack privacy system that we're super excited about putting out. And for me is like, you know, I guess it's one of the more novel aspects as well. Um, because, you know, when we think of the mixed net, we can kind of think of it as basically a, you know, Tor or VPN, but like much more powerful, right? So conceptually speaking, it's something that is kind of relatively familiar to people who have had some, you know, interaction with privacy systems in the past. But when it comes to anonymous credentials, you know, now we're dealing with, you know, a new set of technologies, which is becoming more and more kind of popular with the rise zero knowledge proofs as well. And anonymous credentials is, you know, something that's kind of like, I guess, to explain it, to try and explain it a little bit better. You know, it allows you to prove certain credentials, certain aspects about yourself that will grant you access to some given service without having to reveal unnecessary information. Right now, one of the big problems with the way that we deal with digital services is that, you know, that first of all, like yeah, our interaction across services is very often linkable. And uh, anonymous credentials delinks that. So it's like, you know, when you log into one thing, it, it won't reveal information about when you logged into some other thing. But also, you know, you can start doing kind of like more interesting things, like, for example, prove the fact that you're over 18 years old, but without having to reveal any kind of documentation for that, you know, without having to actually show your passport, which gives you know your full name your exact date of birth where you're born all this other extra stuff which you know shouldn't really be necessary to access kind of like quite basic services so that's the kind of interesting bit to anonymous credentials is that it actually it's this whole new privacy design space that allows for some sort of verifiability and accountability alongside privacy so like the best of both worlds in a sense
0: awesome yeah and so the the way that I think about it is, I mean, the easiest kind of example of this is like, and I've never had this experience, but I, I hear it a lot from, from friends where they go to a bar and they don't want to have to give you know, their address, but they want to be able to prove that they're 18 or 16 or 21, or depending on what jurisdiction you're in, to be able to get into the bar, right? And so essentially being able to break down into composable data, different aspects of your identity or different aspects of... Your skill set. I mean, you can imagine all sorts of implications of this technology over time, and then being able to present the information that you want to present and then hide or, or withhold the information that you don't want to present. I think the the interesting thing about this again is it goes back to what you were talking about earlier about kind of using these technologies within an institutional framework where they support kind of making those institutions better as opposed to trying to build institutions from the ground up like i could imagine that this sort of technology could be sold to democratic governments right or to state legislatures or to cities or to companies right but then when you get into a framework where you've got a repressive regime all this stuff makes a whole lot less sense to me right like i don't understand why you know a dictator would be interested in anonymized credentials or like why the, if I'm trying to create kind of a social reputation score for a billion people, why I would actually care about this sort of technology. And here, this is, this for me is why the, the, the countries that embrace this set of technologies broadly defined as, you know, blockchain distributed ledger technologies and then the primitive Lego blocks that are built on top of them are actually going to be far more competitive over time. Right, because effectively, the ability to build associations and to work together in community, given how composable these Lego blocks are, enables all sorts of new design space that those societies that are clamping down on these technologies really don't have the freedom to play around with.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, but I also want to kind of want to flag up the the what is required to actually work in that design space in a kind of sensible way. Because, you know, like when it comes to kind of authoritarianisms and control and oppression, you know, we, sure, we can kind of like talk about regimes where that's like super visible. But I think there's also kind of more insidious forms that that can take, which includes like, um you know, algorithmic forms of classification, reputation and control, including, you know, things like credit scoring and, and whatever else, which is something that you know we live with in, in our societies, you know, and where like the adoption of these kinds of technologies would be very welcomed. So, like, and it, and I don't know to try and make that a little bit more concrete. Like, we one of the kind of prototypes that we were building in Nim, kind of using anonymous credentials. One of the kind of first experiments that we did was on the COVID passport, right? And so we built a kind of like prototype that used you know our anonymous credential uh, protocol scheme called Coconut to, you know, allow for, you know, selective disclosure of, you know, COVID vaccine status. And one of the people that we work quite closely with, which is a, you know, a phenomenal researcher called Carmela Troncoso, she was one of the people that developed the decentralized track and trace protocol in Europe. And she, you know, we were speaking with her and her kind of skepticism was that, you know, fundamentally like, okay, anonymous credentials can be kind of interesting for protecting privacy around, you know, in certain circumstances, but sometimes they can also become a kind of distraction from a kind of bigger debate around discrimination and control that is otherwise happening through these forms of checks. Right. And that's kind of like something that I'm also, I don't know that I think we need to be kind of, kind of quite wary of that, like sometimes, okay, give, I guess like to make it a little bit more concrete, the idea of an individual being able to selectively disclose what data they want to reveal at any given moment is like not necessarily a technical problem because, you know, when you're at the door, like the doorman might not, care right they'll just be like well you got to show me you know everything anyway you know so this kind of it doesn't necessarily address the relationship of power that might be enacted and so i think we need to kind of be a little bit wary of like what can actually be done at the technical level and what needs to be done at a well let me put this differently what can be done at the technical and individual level in terms of like you know this idea of empowering people to to be able to to decide for themselves And this goes, you know, this goes all the way into like also like the kind of like debates that we're having around cookie settings now, right, where it's like, okay, you have the chance to decide yourself, but you have, you know, no idea of what the potential consequences are. You have no possibility to say yes or no, you know, in reality, you have to just click yes if you want to access something you know, like we want to, some of those kind of like dynamics, I think needs to be interrogated much more at a social and a political and collective level rather than just addressed as a question of individual choice. So that's something that I want to flag when it comes to the design space of anonymous credentials going forward. That needs to be, it really needs to be addressed, not just as an engineering problem or an engineering design space, but really as a question of social life, a question of political life, and how we want to kind of live together. And so how we can work that out and how we can work out making a design space that's sensible, um, not just in terms of engineering, is like an open question. I mean, I'm not really seeing that happening.
0: Yeah. And I think like as a you kind of flag for me, you know, as kind of a white male from America in the top. 5% or top 1% I can easily point a finger at China or you know at autocratic regimes and say oh you know like let's look over there they're the real problem like they're not going to be able to use these technologies but you know where I think that this gets really exciting is you know there's so many areas of life where people are discriminated against by design right if you imagine kind of the US is one of the largest populations if not the largest population per capita of prisoners and ex-offenders in the world right and when those people get out of prison they've got to apply for jobs. And every single job that they're applying to, they have to say that they're an ex offender, right? So you could imagine that we move to a world of anonymized credentials where you don't have to say that anymore. But that gets back to the power structure of the institution that's actually putting in place. And there's a reason why, you know, the system today requires people to do that. And it has to do with kind of historical injustice, right? And so this is where your work becomes really fascinating for me, because it's not... It's not so much like we can just build these systems and the whole world is going to be amazing. It's that we've got to kind of integrate these systems and understand the political economy and the, the, the sociology and kind of the anthropological context within which these systems are being designed and implemented to understand the limitations of actually achieving the goals that we hope to achieve around of inclusion. And we don't get to a point where we got to with Web2 where everyone thought that this was going to be kind of a panacea. And it turned out that it actually reinforced a lot of the power structures that we have today
1: yeah exactly i mean i I think it's just very important to keep an eye on that kind of like more insidious form of of control that gets like ingrained and reinforced through large technical systems it also has to do with like the i'm trying to kind of find a a better way to kind of like phrase this but the temptation that comes about through the sheer possibility of being able to do something right so like when you have you know When you have kind of, for me, I think what we're talking about here really is the question of access, right? And who determines or what determines the conditions of access to a given service or a given space or whatever else. And that kind of like the fine grained access control. I mean, like, okay, so to take my geographer's hat on a little bit, because I also have a background in geography, which very much influences my thinking. You know, when we're talking about access and access control, you know, we can think of like the the difference between, you know, when the control of access happened just at the border, right? It's like you're entering a territory, you're entering a country or whatever, you cross the border. And then once you're across that border, you're free, you know, you've passed the kind of conditions or whatever else. And, you know, now you can kind of go about your amorphous life and meet people and change and develop freely as as a human being. But what we're seeing with kind of like digital uh, territories, and here I mean digital territories, meaning also the digital mediation of our day-to-day physical interactions and access to services and so on and so forth, it means that we have kind of now increasingly fine-grained access controls to an increasing number of You know, carved out spaces and engagements and interactions. You know, that is a kind of consequence of digitization and digital mediation of of more and more of our relationships. And that's where I'm kind of starting to get concerned, where it's like, okay, you know, we've kind of taken that as a natural given, which now has kind of led us to the problem of kind of privacy. And we're now going to like solve that through anonymous credentials, but we're not taking a moment or a step back to actually consider. You know, what are these new forms of control that, that, have, that have come about? You know, what are these new forms? You know, what are these new bordered spaces that are being created in the process? And yeah, that's uh, uh, it's basically a design space that is super fascinating and super interesting. And I think a lot of very important questions around power and social life are going to be determined there. But it really needs like much more intensive interdisciplinary collaboration for us to kind of make sense of it. yeah, I, I mean, I actually I- if I'm honest, I have so much more to say, especially about like the interactions of zero knowledge proofs and uh, machine learning algorithms. But I feel like that's one for another another time
2: I mean, I it's funny I was kind of going to poke at that too, but I think like, and it might also be good to, as we head out, as we close out the last few minutes, you do a lot of super interesting, uh, I wouldn't say it's speculative fiction, but it's very like speculative political economy, right? Around stuff like uh, what you put out with the agorist folks, which I thought was very interesting, the agorist X, Y, Z zine. And so I think like before we go any further into that, would you say like way at the beginning of the pod, we were talking about you know economic schools, crypto economics, uh, that kind of stuff. Would you say... There's any particular school that you've been influenced by school or schools of economics that kind of fed into your the current version of Jaya?
1: I mean like I said and I think in the very beginning I you know it's my kind of my schooling when it comes to economics is more as a kind of political economist meaning you know I look at the field of economics with a political lens and so you know in terms of kind of like influences I you know I'd le- I'm more interested in the like, I don't follow a specific economic school. I rather follow kind of like critical thinkers that think about what does the, even the kind of the concept of the economy do to our social relations. And so, you know, there, I think, like, in fact, I've found anthropologists to be super valuable. And I think, like, the entire blockchain and Web3 space should read a lot more anthropology because it is just such a rich source of inspiration for possible alternatives and new forms of economic designs and crazy thinking, and here I'm thinking, you know, both, you know, of course, David Graeber, you know, you read, you yes. know, five thousand years of debt, it's phenomenal, but also you read the, his his latest um, his latest book with David Wengrow, it, you know, there's it's just fascinating to open your mind to this the the many different ways that we as human beings have lived on this planet that extend far beyond the realm of economics, right? I think the field of of economics is is way too ahistorical. And, it, and, you know, you kind of get lost in it being, you know, like the economy being like some kind of like preordained set of ways of relating to the world. So like taking both a historical and an anthropological step out of that kind of like mm-hmm. enclosed space, I think is very healthy and very helpful to think through um, economics. So yeah, David Graeber. Also, you know, Brett Scott is also a fantastic. Oh writer. yeah, I've
2: met Brett. Um, yeah, he's great.
1: Yeah, he's, he's a good friend of mine, and he's just putting out a new book called Cloud Money, which I think everybody should absolutely get their hands on and read. Gabriela Coleman is another anthropologist who does phenomenal work, less on economy but on peer to you know, thinking through peer to peer culture and hacker culture, um, is also hugely illuminating for. You know some of the kind of like uh, cultural bra- backdrop to the kind of the, the tech space, and then I think historians are also very important to read. You know, I would love to point people towards Philip morowski and Edward Nikka, although like I personally, you know, because they're they're great minds and they, you know, at, you know they analyze the the close relationship that information technology has always had with the economics discipline, especially via Hayek, which, you know, is someone that I like to repeatedly criticize (laughs) in a lot of my talks and texts. And Philip Murawski and Egbert Ka um, do a great job critiquing, you know, the kind of history of economics as a discipline. What's unfortunate, though, is that they write in what I find to be one of the most kind of like cynical and off-putting ways. So, you know, I think people should absolutely read them because they're They provide, it's important information, but just please, you know, be patient with the delivery because they're just such negative writers. And then I would also say, you know, another important historian, Lorraine Dawson, I would also absolutely recommend. This, again, is more in the realm of tech than economics, but looking at, for example, the origins of algorithms in Cold War thinking, Which for anyone who's trying to understand, you know, the way that trust and trustlessness operate in the blockchain space, you know, you can kind of trace back the kind of like the idea of trustlessness very much to, you know, Cold War thinking and the reasoning why algorithms came about in the first place, you know, why algorithmic thinking came about and this idea of separating getting rid of the kind of like human intervention because the human intervention might be erratic or emotional. They might press the red button when they shouldn't, right? <laughs> and this idea that, like, we need algorithms to separate the human away from the red button and, and that, in fact, like, algorithms are more trustworthy than humans. You know, like, that that as an ideological project and as a dogma is something that that Lorraine Dawson amongst, I think there's a book called How Reason Almost Lost Its Mind. That's right. I'll, yeah, yeah, Paul Erickson as well. Is in, anyway, several authors of that book, which was recommended to me by another author, who I also want to recommend. I'm sorry, I could just go on oh, and on. in My reading our show with-
2: notes, our show notes could be could go on forever. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> go ahead, because I think like you're harping on some important points, which is like when I'm I'm in a couple DAOs, and obviously like I actually am seeking to along Martin is as well to support projects that ostensibly can decentralize for real purposes, actually spread yeah. the wealth they're generating, right? But a common refrain, right? Of course, no one everyone needs, you know, web three blockchain engineering talent, so to speak. But the number one thing for me has always been, oh, actually, where are my social workers, community organizers, who are the yeah. people who actually are have experience with the messiness that gets fed into these systems and how to actually decide and help communities decide what goes in and what shouldn't right exactly. and like like that's i think really important so everything you just listed out is almost like a absent. reading it's like a read yeah. it's a read it's a great reading list to get save like why is that a thing? Why do I and you and you know Martin and others think this is the thing you should do first, right before you yeah, just yeah. jump in there willy-nilly with some new money lego that you think is going to solve all of the problems of abundance and scarcity <laughs> right like, yeah,
1: I mean, sometimes just reading a little bit of history, reading a bit of anthropology is like you get those aha moments of like, oh, that's why we keep thinking in this way or that's why we keep repeating this one thing or and it can be very helpful to kind of like free the mind to think through some alternatives. But yeah, so the the final the last book that I that I just wanted to recommend pump it. Pump it. was, uh, was uh, Louise Amor, who is my you know, PhD examiner, in fact. And she wrote a book called Cloud, Cloud Ethics, um, which you know is, is also super important that and she was the one that actually put me on to this how reason almost lost its mind book. But yeah, I'll write all these into the kind of oh, the yeah. note.
2: Please <laughs> do. And I think uh, it's Duke University Press, so I'm already it's already like in my top five university presses they're usually pretty good awesome very cool i think like one of the last things to wrap up on then is you know you went into some really interesting things exploring the almost it's like a, speculating on the future of markets as an organizing principle right and i think like this is really important i think for folks to hear a bit because you know as martin explicated a bit earlier there are folks who are looking at making markets where markets haven't been tried before as a particular accountability mechanism, or you know, what accountability or efficiency or any other feature of markets that they want to bring, where they think it's going to be the solution to, or a solution at least a solution worth trying. Right? I wouldn't say that the first thing we talked to earlier was like that much of a absolutist, but it's more like, hey, here's the thing I've seen work in some places, and let's try it out. And I think that what's kind of maybe the thing we can leave off on here is what is your most dystopian thought? on where this could end up, right? Like what's the worst version of that? You know, with markets as a means of escape, I think is one of the things you said, right? With a question mark, even I think it was markets as a means of escape, right? Like what are the real bad failure modes that can come along with that with some crypto economic enthusiasm? and enthusiasm for markets right well, what should we really <laughs> avoid black
0: mirror i mean this black mirror is the worst right i mean they've already kind of yeah. figured out i can I can,
2: I can maybe oh i can think of way worse ones than that but yes
1: <laughs> i mean Mirror's i in a in a recent talk i actually someone asked me if i was a pessimist and i said i'm a post pessimist which means like you know there's a certain point where it's like you're like well it doesn't matter if i'm a pessimist or not like things are going to shit and like You just kind of have to get on with it and do your best to kind of like try and make sense of things as we, you know, move towards what we keep hoping is a better direction. I mean, in terms of dystopian scenarios, like there's so many, but I think the overarching one and one that like I'm, you know, (laughs) I don't know, I I recently did another talk also where I was talking about the structural stupidity of Hayekian market economics, you know, which is a little bit like you know you get kind of. Is this kind of idea of like once you delegate the question of coordination and, you know, even the question of broader direction to the market, you create a form of structural and aggregate stupidity where it's like everyone is assigned to just like, well, you just do your individual thing. As long as you behave economically rational, the market will arrange everything in the right direction, which means that people lose sight of the broader aggregate effects. And, you know, a certain kind of structural stupidity kicks in where even when like, you know, you have externalities and, you know, bad shit happening as a result of market economics happening right in front of people's eyes, they still kind of dismiss it because like, oh, no, the market will correct itself. You know, the market knows better because the market is the only one that has the aggregate information of the collective behavior of everybody. Right. So there's a certain kind of structural stupidity that's actually struck, that's built into Hayekian economics. And so, yes, I'm sometimes concerned that we're reproducing that at scale or like in not at scale, at scale has already happened, but more like yeah. in more fine grained manners. And that, you know, that combined with, you know, the super kind of short termism and meme like kind of like attention span and entertainment Completely like distracts people from a total collapse of our ecosystem.
2: (laughs) That's true. That's true. I mean, I look again in the VC market, right, where I'm exposed to some of these people who might be limited partners in the fund that we're building, right? It's mm -hmm. like I just see like on LinkedIn, like, hey, really happy to participate in the series A round of this. I'm not making this up. Yeah. Distributed luggage storage. Startup, right, and then buy from a sixteen set, and I'm like, buddy, who's going to use that thing in ten years? When a flight to a transcontinental flight in twenty years costs like five thousand dollars, right? Oh Right, and then in addition to the fact that you know I'm not even talking about the environmental impacts, right? I'm just like, this yeah. is an interesting market you have here, my friends. So. <laughs> yeah. One of the other things that's interesting you bring but, up. Oh, sorry, sorry my... just
1: no, one point on that. Like yeah, yeah. Even when people are like, okay, no, but let's make a, a blockchain for good project that actually addresses climate change issues, right? The problem that we often see there is that, you know, it's like, okay, all the right ideas, all the right intentions. But then it's like, okay, let's build a token and we'll make do an ICO. And then suddenly everyone is so wrapped up in making the, the token economics make sense you know, that everything else goes out the window. And it's like, you know, and speak of like, and, and what baffles me about this is like, one of the kind of like early claims or ideals of this space was this idea of disintermediation, right? Um right. Kind of, you know, and disintermediation, if we take it kind of like a, a kind of bigger look at that, like what we're trying to kind of actually achieve there is less faff, right? Less kind of like, less kind of, you know, bureaucracy, less kind of like third parties involved in, in us actually trying to achieve the very specific and very real things that we're trying to achieve. And then what you actually see happening in this space is like an insane amount of intermediation, right? Like, I don't know how many different tokens that you need in order to pay the gas fees or the fees for this and that, in order to then get, you know, to transfer your token over to this or that chain to then do this and that and whatever. And at the end oh of the day, God. like you never actually get around to achieving the actual thing that you wanted to achieve because you're so enamored and wrapped up in the token economics. And by the way, you you know, your tokens are compounding. So who cares anyway? Right. It's like this type of stuff where it's like, Oh yeah. my God. And, yeah. and then, like, there's, you know, who cares about the rest?
2: Yeah. I really wish we had had you at the Taoist in Amsterdam last week at DevConnect. We did a two-day event for um, DAOs, and I ran a workshop on like, what are the actual principles of uh, this regenerative finance crypto economics thing that people, the new meme that's been popping up. And I mean, I'm sympathetic to the meme, obviously, like I'm actually trying to help, you know, regen network and other folks who are bringing this to being, I think it's a solid idea, but I think it takes a lot of patience, right? Like the projects that are out there are purposely not really launching tokens first, like they're in year three or four of what they're doing where they're like, well, we don't need to think about the tokenomics first what's the real world impact we can do how do yeah. we include the people who will be doing it and all that so i yeah. mean this is not i'm not doing this is not at all like a hey jaya you didn't know about this thing it's more like I pointing out that i think you're 100 percent right that like the 99.9 of projects out there are doing the when token thing right yeah and and that we we need to have space for move slowly and fix things right yeah. <laughs> if we, we want to have yeah. a chance at all
1: I mean, the the problem there is that you know the the reason why people are when you know go when token is because like fundamentally that's been the one successful story of the the whole space so far, is Very as true. a fundraising mechanism. Man, you know it's yep. like, and that's and that's you know it's hard to kind of like get around that, and it's hard to have you know to really kind of implement the kind of patience that's required to then go about and be like, okay, but what kind of do we even need a token, and what are we actually trying to achieve, right? But you're right to point to some of the kind of like more mature thinking in the space. Like it's, it's absolutely true that, that not everybody is kind of storming headlong in that direction. Yeah. There was something but, else I wanted to add to that. Oh, uh,
2: no, well, no problem. If you're a member, didn't feel free to interject. I think we can uh, begin to wrap it up. I think um, this is the time when we'd kind of turn it over to you and say, Hey, this is your opportunity to shill. So there's actually two success stories in crypto, by the way. Number one is tokens, as fundraising mechanisms, obviously great, you know, defense against inflation, etc. number two is very good for shilling, right? That's the other yeah. thing. Like, so <laughs> I'd like to hand it over to you, tell us where to find you online, tell us more about any of the projects you're working on and how the, our audience can find you.
1: Cool. Yeah. I remember what I was going to say, and and it could it can become part of the me shilling exercise. You know, I think I'm starting to describe myself as a rigorous fence sitter about um, the whole kind of blockchain and crypto space because I've realized that many times when I'm speaking to non crypto people, they think I'm a total fanatic, right? And then I'm, when I'm speaking to crypto people, they think I'm the worst critic, and it's because I'm like somewhere in between, trying to kind of like. Really trying to make sense of, of the space. So, yeah, if anyone wants to follow me as I go through doing that work, Twitter is the most, you know, the easiest place to follow me right now, which is uh, Jaya Papaya. And in fact, I tend to be Jaya Papaya in most places and most platforms. And uh, yeah, otherwise, you know, I work very closely or I work at NIM, I'm the head of strategy at NIM Technologies. And I'm also currently a fellow at the Weizenbaum Institute in Berlin, where I do most of my kind of like theoretical um, thinking and, and writing at the moment. And yeah, hopping around Europe quite a bit and hopefully further abroad in the next few months. But anyone should, yeah, feel free to, to reach out.
2: Great. And then the other one other thing I'd add is definitely check out agorist.xyz. Jaya wrote a amazing piece there about kind of the marketi- marketization of, of our, all of our futures and implications there. It's very cool. I highly recommend a it. Very
1: punchy title.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> it's, it's like the, the market as a gun to your head tool in, in your hand or escape route from hell.
2: <laughs> Indeed. And I think it's like, um, it's the kind of cautionary, you know, stuff that if you were wondering why there are fence sitters like us, I include myself in that only because like when people, and I've injected some serious doubt in folks last week in Amsterdam where people are like, so like, yeah, I heard you're like investing in stuff and Dow's is that and the other, like, what are you, what's your, what's your take on the future of Dallas? I was like, I'll be surprised if they're around in five years. <laughs> and then they're like, what do you mean? I thought, wait, should I not be a doubt? I'm like, what? why are you listening to me so much, bro? I mean, I have my I have my own doubts, right? But yes, I think that you know we can do an entire podcast episode on that. But I think that your writing in the space is definitely needed and very much the writing and thoughts here as a foil to a lot of the crypto opium out there because it's not that you know i'm a pessimist i'm very much uh, have to be an optimist i'm a child i can't ever really be a pessimist (laughs) and so um but i like what you put out there and i want to pump that agorist piece and and check out as well hop on google scholar and look up some of jaya's actually scholarly work in the political economy of blockchains which we'll put in the show notes so
1: thank you so much Chad and thank you martin it's been great to be on the show same thanks so much